my parents introduced me early in the training process to a category of speech that we called family talk. Family talk was information that we freely shared together as a family, but information no one outside of our family was ever to hear. Uh, it started simply, and it worked its way up, but family talk was to be kept in the family. It did not take me long to discover as a young boy that some families apparently did not have the family talk rule. Uh, some of my peers seemed unrestrained in their willingness to blab just about anything about their private lives, their family lives, their home lives. But as I grew older, I came slowly to a second more somber realization. In the homes of some of my peers and neighbors and relatives, family talk carried a much darker connotation than it did in my home. I learned that for many families, family talk was interchangeable with family secret, and the substance of some of those secrets was horrifying. We don't have to live very long on this earth to realize that many people suffer directly or indirectly under the weight of repulsive family secrets. Scandalous, shameful, degrading acts of sin which tear a hole in the fabric of a family's well-being. Adding to the pain are three stark realizations. Test them. I, I think they're true. Number one, often the so-called family secret doesn't remain secret. Number two, often the way people deal with such matters is worse than the original sin itself. And number three, often these secretive acts adversely affect far more people than they originally involved. Such is life in a fallen world. But I thank God that His written Word does not steer clear of these harsh realities. That we live out there, these difficulties, we experience them, we talk to people, we face our own trials. Some of these hard, harsh realities all by ourselves. But our glorious, holy, pure, faultless God chooses to record in the pages of His holy book acts of rape, and incest, and adultery, accounts of jealousy, parental favoritism, and deception, crimes of theft, insurrection, and murder, all taking place within the context of families, yes, even believing families. They're right here in this book. It is a sad but necessary dose of reality to conclude today our study of righteous Noah with the scandalous account that we find in Genesis 9. To this point in the text, we have known Noah as a singularly righteous man. Chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, if you just skim through there to remember the context, we have here the corrupt state of the earth. In verses 8 and following, we have this, what we might call a front bracket, which signals the start of the flood narrative. This reference to Noah, notice at verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. This is the account of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people of his time, and he walked with God. He had three sons, and then the flood narrative begins in chapter 6, verse 11, and goes, you can page through there to chapter 9 and verse 17, where that narrative Closes. We've looked at that on Sunday mornings over the past number of weeks. 
in verse 18 of chapter 9, and verse 19, we could include that as well, these two verses serve to conclude the flood narrative, and they also pave the way into a bizarre series of events which took place in Noah's home, or we might say more accurately, around Noah's tent. But we have in verses 18 and 19 really the players in this account. Verse 18 reads, The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Noah's sons are usually listed in this order. It may be very well their birth order. But we observe this very strange note that Ham is the father of Canaan. I mean, so what? As we come to chapter 10, each of these men has a number of sons. But this particular son, Canaan, is drawn out for our attention. A little foreshadowing. Now before Moses gets into the story about Noah here, he observes, verse 19, that these three that these were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the earth. It is just, uh, if it wasn't so sad, it'd be humorous how carefully the biblical text makes clear that this was a universal flood. Here, once again, we have reference to the three sons. From these three, all the families on earth uh, are born. This was not a local flood. And the only way that we can make it a local flood is to simply disregard the statements of Scripture. Very clearly, you see there in verse 19 that the people who are scattered over the earth come from Ham, Shem, and Japheth. By the natural mechanisms of genetic variation and recombination, every human being on earth came ultimately from the seed of these three men. And what it means is that we all have the same human father. Genetically, Noah is our father. These then are the players of the narrative, Noah and his three sons. A number of years after he's embarked from the ark, we read, beginning in verse 20, that Noah, a man of the soil, proceeded to plant a vineyard. When he drank some of the wine, he became drunk and lay uncovered inside his tent. It is a shameful, embarrassing, sinful experience in the life of this righteous man. In his home, in his tent, he becomes drunk. As God had promised in chapter 8 and verse 22, as long as the earth endures, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night will never cease. And so friendly rains had visited the earth and Noah had experienced the joy of a harvest. But like his father, Adam, Noah became a horticulturist. He dug, he planted, he pruned, and he reaped. But also like his father, Adam, he sinned. When he drank some of the wine, he became drunk. And he lay uncovered inside of his tent. We have here Noah's nakedness. The narrative does not focus really so much upon Noah's drunkenness as upon his nakedness. However, it's obvious that his drunkenness led to his nakedness. As we paralleled it in the adult class this morning, it might be very parallel to Adam taking the fruit. The fruit wasn't in the, in the Garden of Eden. The fruit itself wasn't evil. Uh, the vine plants uh, from which Noah drinks here are not evil, but it is the cause of his nakedness. This is the same Noah who was the one man in the entire world that God looked at and said, this is a righteous man. 
In chapter 6 and verse 9, he is called righteous and blameless. But this same Noah, this godly man, chooses to overindulge in wine. And as we put it in the vernacular, he is plastered. He's gone. He's laying there with nothing on in his tent. The Bible never condones, or rather I should say, the Bible never condemns alcohol as an evil substance in and of itself, that there's something evil about the drink. But the Bible does clearly warn against the moral pitfalls associated with alcohol. Let's take a little sideline here. Proverbs chapter 23 We'll come back to Genesis, but Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 29. There is a very significant warning here to us. Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshot eyes? Those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine, do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. Your eyes will see strange sights and your mind imagine confusing things. You will be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging. They hit me, you will say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up so that I can find another drink? In Hosea chapter 4 and verse 10, we'll not turn there, but God issues a scathing rebuke to rebellious, self-satisfied Israel. Let me just quote it to you. They have deserted the Lord to give themselves to prostitution, to old wine and new wine, which take away the understanding of my people. As Ephesians chapter 5 continues revelation, alcohol has the natural tendency in Ephesians 5 and verse 18 to loosen our proper inhibition and to work against the influence of the Holy Spirit. Now, Noah did not benefit from all of this revelation, nor did he enjoy the same ministry of the Spirit that we do today. That's described for us in Ephesians chapter 5. But he did choose to throw off his capacity for moral discernment. And in this shameful, drunken condition, he throws off something else, his clothes. He made a stupid, sinful decision. This righteous man, this patriarch, lays in his tent in an undignified, inappropriate, degenerate condition. He has lost all moral constraints. But as I mentioned earlier, it is often the case that how people react to shameful family failure is often worse than the failure itself. And we see that downward spiral commence in verse 22, where we read, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. Now that might strike us as kind of just a simple statement, but it's not. And the text will go on to make that very clear. We have Ham's response contrasted with Shem and Japheth. We'll look at those in a moment, but let's look at Ham's response. In the Old Testament, sometimes uh, the word is used to uncover one's nakedness as a euphemism for sexual intimacy. You could look at Leviticus 18 for an example of that, or Ezekiel 16, 36, 37. So some have suggested that what's really happening here, not much is being filled into the text, but Ham is seeing his naked father and commits an act of sodomy with his father in his drunken state. 
Others have said because of this connection with uncovering nakedness that the idea might be that he had a sexual relationship with his mother, that uh, Noah was in that state, was thinking in those terms, but he came so drunk he was naked, his mother was there, and that he possibly raped his mother. These interpretations are possible. I bring them to you because many would argue this way and think this way. I don't particularly think that they're accurate. Uh, first of all, if sexual sin was involved, we would expect the text to say that Ham uncovered Noah's nakedness. That would fit the euphemism of the Old Testament that we find in Leviticus 18, but it doesn't use that phrase. Noah uncovered his own nakedness. Ham did not. Um, the occasion of Noah's drunkenness, secondly, was his own sin, or his own, or, or the, the occasion of his nakedness was his drunkenness, not uh, not Ham particularly. So first of all, if, we, if it was sexual sin, we might expect that Ham uncovered Noah, but we don't find that here. Secondly, Ham's actions are contrasted with his brother's actions, and his brother's actions have nothing to do with abstinence from illicit sex. And you'll see that as we go through the text. So I think it is best to just simply take the text for what it says, and it doesn't say much. It just says that Ham saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers. Does that account, does this account remind you of something? Does it bring back something to us? We, we have to see here Genesis chapter 3. We read there that Adam sinned and then hid from God because he was naked. Adam hid in the garden in the shame of his fallen nakedness. And what did God do? He covers Adam. Notice verse 23, back here in the account of Noah. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their, brother, uh, across their shoulders. Then they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. What God did to Adam is what Shem and Japheth do to Noah. They cover nakedness that has resulted from sin. What does Ham do? Ham sees Noah, and then he walks out the tent. He hunts down his brothers, and he publishes the news that their father is naked. Now, was he simply informing them of a problem? Verse 24, I think, answers that for us. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him, so obviously what... Ham had done whatever it was, and we include the possibility that it was some type of sexual perversion, but at least what the text does indicate to us, what he had done was to publish his father's shamefulness. And what Ham did was utterly evil, whatever it was. He saw and he told, and with this response, he sinned. In other words, Ham did not did not labor to cover the shame of his father, but to mock it, to make a, a public spectacle of his father's sin. By contrast, how did Shem and Japheth respond? They put this garment over their shoulders and they walk backwards into the tent and they cover their father, never seeing his nakedness. Now the point is not that seeing someone naked uh, other than one's mate is some type of unique taboo. Uh, that had they seen their father just by a, a, 
a glance, a mistaken glance that that was somehow in itself evil. But I think what is happening here is they are responding to Ham's response. Ham sees his father, he goes out and makes it public, he mocks it, he makes a joke of sin, and they say, we're not going to do that. We're going to go the extra mile, and we're going to do the exact opposite. So they cover their father's nakedness. Now the Hebrew text here, more than the English, very skillfully draws a sharp contrast between Ham and his brothers by the way it uses the word to see. Ham saw. Japheth and Shem did not see. In other words, Moses, the author, wants us to get the point that Shem and Ham did something absolutely Shem and Japheth did something absolutely different than Ham. Ham purposefully saw his father naked and left him that way. Shem and Japheth acted so as not to see their father's nakedness. Now the significance of these two different responses is maybe more profound than we might at first expect. If we look carefully at the unfolding of biblical revelation, the concept of covering human nakedness presents itself as a salvation motif. Notice Genesis 2 and verse 27. I'm sorry, verse 25. Genesis chapter 2 and verse 25. We'll just trace it for just a, a short ways. Genesis 2.25 says, The man and his wife were both naked and felt no shame. God creates Adam and Eve naked. He does not create them with clothing. Creates them naked. There's no shame within the sexual uh, marital relationship. Now Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, Adam and Eve fall into sin. They disregard God's will. They violate the Creator's mandate. And verse 7, the result is that the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So what do they do? They try to develop some covering for themselves. Pretty tough when you've never done it before. They try to get some leaves and put it together. They, they tie the leaves together and they make this covering for themselves. We notice in chapter 3 and verse 21, then as the text develops, that the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Again in Genesis 9, nakedness plays an important role in the outworking of God's plan of salvation. God covers Adam and Eve in the nakedness of their guilt and their shame. They realize their nakedness when they sin, God covers. As the Bible unfolds, God continues to show himself as the one who clothes naked people in a spiritual sense. Now think about it for a moment. John 4, John 6. God created us with physical thirst and with physical hunger. Jesus Christ stands up and says what? I am the bread of life. I give you the water of life. You drink this water, you'll never thirst again. You eat of me and you will never be hungry again. Does he mean physically? Of, of course not. But he presents himself as the one who meets these cravings, these natural needs of our life in a spiritual sense. When Adam sinned, mankind was visited then with feelings of shame that are associated with physical nakedness. Our emotional aversion to public nakedness mirrors the horror of spiritual nakedness as we stand in our sin before a holy God in a spiritually naked state of guilt. But what does God do? 
Genesis 3 and verse 21, he covers Adam and Eve. He covers the sinful couple with a garment. And as Revelation develops, we learn that when Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose from the dead, he provided a garment of righteousness, which he will place around your shoulders if you trust him as Savior. A garment that will cover us as we stand before the searching eyes of a holy God. Shem and Japheth cover the guilt and the shame of their father. In a word, they act like God. They mirror the work of salvation. They do not laugh at sin. They do not broadcast it. They do not make light of it. They don't turn it into some spectacle. They cover sin. They work to see that their father is properly covered, that his shame, that his guilt is taken care of. They act like God. And through the prophetic word, God sends a message to us concerning these three sons or from their life and from their example. And what develops then in the text, kind of an introduction of verse 24, but then develops prophecy. In verse 24, we read, When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done, he said, Cursed be Canaan. So as the effects of the alcohol wear off, Noah awakes to the bitter reality of his degenerate actions. How did Noah discover what Ham had done? Very possibly Shem and Japheth share that with him. We don't know. It's not said. But I'm sure it was a very painful discovery. He came to his senses. He woke up and realized what he had done. I'm sure it was humiliating for Noah to realize that his own sin had been publicly exposed. Very likely, hearing it from his other sons, he turns his attention to his youngest son. Verse 25, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Now, let me just back up there in verse 24. I missed one phrase, but the youngest son. I don't think that's a very good translation, the NIV here, the youngest son. It's really the younger son. It's usually The sons are usually listed Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham very possibly is the second son, but he's younger than apparently Shem. Uh, what the meaning is, we're not totally sure, but his youngest son is apparently referring to Ham. Now, as I mentioned in the introduction, seldom, if ever, do shameful acts of sin fail to adversely affect far more people than they originally involved. And so it is here on a grand scale. In verse 25, we find this curse upon Canaan. The lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. Now that's not referring just to Canaan as one individual, but to all of his children. Canaan being a child of Ham. What I think we have here, we need to understand, is what, we, what one is called inspired prophecy. That is, God gives special revelation to Noah to issue the curse and the blessings which correspond to the sovereign will of God. So it's not Noah's waking up, somebody explains to him what has happened, and he becomes angry and says, I curse Canaan. It's, it's not just that. He's not just swearing at, at this child. But there is this uh, revelational prophecy that comes from God that accords with the sovereign purposes of God as they will develop throughout the Scriptures. Now, we have to stop here and say, why does he curse Canaan? This is something Ham did. The father is not cursed, but the son is cursed for the father's sin. Why is that? Let me give you a couple of ideas. Um, Gerhardus Voss has said this, the Old Testament is not so morbidly individualistic as we are apt to be. 
That is very true. Especially in the earlier part of the Old Testament revelation, the principle of generic solidarity is stressed. That is, you are seen as part of your family. The individuality that we know in our Western culture was not so much the case with them. Secondly, Ham may be punished in one of his younger sons because he, as a younger son, shamed his father. So there's a sense of equal justice being issued here. Thirdly, it may well be that Canaan had a part in the sin. It's not expressed here in the text for us, but it may be that either he participated in the sin or in some way he had the same attitude, the same sensual spirit that his father had who made a mockery of sin rather than seeking to cover it. But in some way, what we must always come back to is God is just. and God chooses to curse Canaan. It's interesting to note that Genesis commonly anticipates the sins of subsequent generations in the sin of their father. Think of Jacob and Esau. We see in them Israel and Edom. Think of Lot. We see in them the Moabites and the Ammonites. And this narrative anticipates the wickedness of the Canaanites in their father Canaan. Now remember the context here. Where's this book being written? It's written as the Israelites have exited Egypt and are walking around in in the desert and are looking to possess the land of the Canaanites. And so all of this is working according to prophecy as God uh, leads out, leads the children of Israel out of, of Egypt. In Leviticus 18, God accuses the Canaanites of incest, of bestiality, of infanticide, that is, they burn their children in the fire uh, in, to the god Molech. God pictures the land of Palestine then vomiting out the Canaanites. They were a, a vile people. And their vileness is anticipated in their father, Canaan. Now he's said here to be then, to be, he's prophesied to be the lowest slave, or a, literally a slave of slaves. Where is that fulfilled? I think we see it in the book of Joshua, where the Canaanites were destroyed. Those that were not destroyed were enslaved to the Israelites. So it's a prophecy. God is predicting what is going to happen. Notice that the curse is not, however, upon Ham, but only upon his son. Because of his sin, Ham and his descendants are not blessed, but the curse is reserved for the descendants of Canaan. Some have used this passage to justify the enslavement of Ham's descendants. But uh, we'll talk, I trust, more about that next week. But it's really a sinister twisting of the text. And it shows a great deal of ignorance concerning who the Hamites really are and how this prophecy is to find fulfillment. This is what God says. This is what God takes care of. It's not an individual issue. It's, a, uh, it's the idea of all people on earth are involved in one of these three sons. But suffice it to say here that Ham's sinful response to his father's shameful condition carried adverse consequences upon the Canaanites. Consequences which were experienced when the Israelites conquered Palestine. That, I think, is where the curse on Canaan comes to bear. We need to be cautious again. We're not talking here about a universal anathema on every individual Canaanite. We think just specifically of the context of Joshua, Rahab, uh, in the city of Jericho, comes to join the Israelite people. So it's not talking about everyone who is a descendant of Ham is cursed, or everyone who's even a descendant of Canaan is cursed. That's not what the Bible's saying. But it's just saying that this is an overall principle, as God will lead out in the... In the uh, storyline of human history. 
Let's look secondly then at blessing. There's the curse upon Canaan. Then there's the blessing on Japheth and Shem. Verse 26. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. May Canaan be the slave of Shem. There's a unique parallelism here. Ham sins. Who gets cursed? Canaan. Shem does what is right. Who gets blessed? The God of Shem. It's kind of unique, but at any rate, God is is blessed in connection with Shem. This is the first time that a specific people group is identified closely with Jehovah God. And of course, that people group includes the Jews who were chosen through Abraham as a kingdom of priests to the world. Ultimately, they were the people through whom Jesus Christ traced his lineage. Think back to chapter 3 and verse 15 in the prophecy. We talked about it again last week. We are moving through now to another prophecy. Blessed be the God of Shem. And the people of Israel will fulfill that prophecy. The Canaanites will, of course, be enslaved to them, as the end of verse 26 makes clear. Verse 27, Noah blesses Japheth. He says, may God extend the territory of Japheth. May Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his slave. Frankly, I don't have a clue what this means uh, specifically. This is a hard prophecy to understand. What does it mean to extend his territory, particularly when we look to history? The Hamites and the Shemites have had as much territory as, as the Japhethites. We're not sure what that means exactly. We do know that God has uniquely blessed the Indo-European peoples with some of the richest land on earth. Is that what he means? We don't know. But... What then is the meaning of dwelling in Shem's tent? I read some commentators who said that means they're going to come in and destroy the Shemites or at least overtake them and live in their tents. Then there's other commentators who say that's a a phrase which means in military terms that you are in agreement with somebody. So who knows? I mean, no, no one can really figure out exactly what it means. And I wonder, as I'm thinking through this, maybe we can't figure it out because it hasn't been fulfilled yet. I don't know. I'd love to do some more work on it, but what we have here is just a very succinct statement that we can't really fill in the details very well. Whatever the prophecy means, however, in some sense, Japheth will benefit from his relationship to Shem. That is, God links Shem and he links Japheth together, and in their mutual relationship, there will be blessing. Now again, caution. This is not to say that one's national or ethnic heritage predetermines one's relationship with God or decides one's destiny. How many Jews today know Jesus Christ, their Messiah, as personal Savior? Obviously, many do not. It's not to say that our national or ethnic heritage predetermines our relationship with God. Faith is always the issue. It's your individual faith, whoever you are, whatever, descendant of whichever son you are. Christ has broken down the wall between Jew and Gentile. There is now one body in Jesus Christ of those who come in faith to him. But the point here is that Noah's sons, I don't, so, are you following me at all? Uh, the, the point is not that you have to go back and say, well, is my father Ham, Shem, or Japheth, and then that predetermines who I am as a person? Not at all. The point here for us on this side of the cross is the two responses to Noah's sin. They are two unique responses that typify the people on earth today. These three sons have two dealings with sin and guilt. One response is to glory in shame. 
That is what the majority do in our culture. They flaunt sin. They exalt it. They talk about it. They publish it in open. They seek to justify it according to uh, the, the structures of our culture and the institutions of our culture. Constantly saying, it's okay. Let's talk about it. Let's publish sin. Second response are those who see in sin legitimate guilt and shame and who take the approach of seeking to cover it in the biblical way. Not to cover it up, like we use that word, it maybe hurts us a little bit. Not a cover-up, but atonement. A covering of sin that is applied by God to the guilty conscience. What does it say to us as we do live in a world where there are many disgraceful family secrets? When much goes on behind closed doors and then eventually leaks out to a place where it becomes a way of life. What we must do is decide with Ham or decide with Shem and Japheth. What we need to do is take the approach of dealing with sin in a biblical way. The biblical way of confrontation, repentance, forgiveness, and the grace of God, which leads to a blessing. You can pretty much put every family out on a little chart and determine to a large degree how effectively they function on the basis of how they deal with sin. And that is what, lie, what lies before us today. There's a lesson that we learned from Noah, the father. That is that given the right circumstances, we're all capable of any sin. The Bible confirms that over and over again. But there is in Noah's debacle, in his failure, there is a warning to us. The lesson that we learn from Noah's sons is that there's an honorable and a dishonorable way to respond to every sin. One way is to add sin on top of sin. And one way is to act as God's agent of cleansing, condemning sin, but seeking to be a blessing in it. That is the heritage of of the story of Japheth and Shem. By God's grace, that will be the story, the heritage of our individual lives. We read in verse 28 and 29 of Noah's death after the flood. Noah lived 350 years. Altogether, Noah lived 950 years and then he died. Noah is obviously still affected by the pre-flood world. We talked about that world, its creation, and how it sustained life very differently than our world today. But he does live quite a while. He was, in a sense, a second Adam in the person and experience of Noah. Human history has given us fresh start after the flood. He was a righteous man, but a fallen man. And in the end, he was a covered man. Less significantly in his tent, as we see here. More importantly, in his heart before a holy God. Who saw Noah as righteous. Imputed righteousness. Righteousness we come to understand as we stand before naked before a holy God. Righteousness is not something we earn. Righteousness must be something God imputes to our account. The garment we pull around ourselves as we stand before God is not the garment of human works and self-righteous ways. The garment, garment that we pull around our nakedness before God is the garment of the work of Jesus Christ in our behalf. It is His righteousness imputed to us. The event recorded in this chapter was a disgraceful experience for Noah. 
But you know where I like to end Noah's life? I like to end it in verse 26. From the words of this man, he says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. He could not fully understand what he had just said. But the Lord, the God of Shem, many, many years later, came to earth in a manger in Bethlehem of Palestine. He took on flesh, walked this life perfectly, and ended it by dying on a cross to pay for your sin and mine. So in these words, Noah shows that he has trusted in God. As he says, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And it is for sinful people to understand the beauty of this phrase. By God's grace, we can avoid a debacle as shameful as Noah experienced here. But at the end of the day, the only hope for any of us is found in the God of Shem. As we close this morning, I just ask you to consider as you bow your heads and close your eyes and just think on your own soul and heart today, your mercy and the way that you have provided forgiveness of sin and victory over sin in our daily basis, in our daily living. God, I plead for your people. These are not new thoughts. This is an exhortation as you have described in your word. It is a call to remember what we know. And I pray that it's been a faithful exhortation. I trust, God, that where it's not been, that your people would discern the truth and that I would be corrected and changed and challenged. But God, where these words are accurate and faithful to your word, I pray that your people would stand on them, would live in light of them. God, I know on a personal basis the fear that can come when we begin to listen to all the stories and the confusion that can come when we begin to listen to people's experiences. But I thank you, God, that when I go to the Scriptures, I find there a source of encouragement, not of fear, but of power. Not of confusion and worry, but a source of hope. Lord, as we battle Satan, we know that we are standing against a foe that is much stronger, wiser, more capable than we are. But we also acknowledge, as we've looked at this text and as we will continue to search the Scriptures, that in You, there is all the power that we need. I thank You for that reminder. And I pray for any among us today who do not know Christ as Savior, that You would bring them to Yourself. And I pray, dear God, for the Christian who may be here today struggling with sin. Sin continues to win. Satan continues to tempt and entice and win the victory. I pray, dear God, that through the ministry of the Word today, you would convince any such individual that there is hope in you and that there is in your plan and in your Word an avenue, a bridge to the greatest and deepest joy that we could ever experience. I pray that you'd convince our minds that way and that we would stand on top of this revealed truth. This is my prayer in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.